Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, we're joined by Haley Arsenault, one of the four crew members selected to fly on SpaceX's Inspiration4. The groundbreaking SpaceX flight was the first spacecraft mission composed entirely of civilians, making Haley the youngest American ever to orbit Earth. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Haley. Thank you so much, Joe. I'm happy to be here. So, Haley, you have quite a background. Um, you were diagnosed with osteosarcoma at 10, and that started to lay the path for a lot of your future. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that experience was like and how you were treated and how that shaped a lot of your thinking about what was to come. Absolutely. So my journey began when I was 10 years old. And before this, I had just been a regular active kid. I had just gotten my black belt in Taekwondo. And one of my knees started to hurt. The doctor thought it was from overuse from Taekwondo. But then I started limping and my mom found a lump above my knee. After an x-ray, the doctor just came into the exam room and told us, this is bone cancer. And that was the moment my whole world changed and changed forever, I just remember being so scared hearing the word cancer because at age 10, everyone I had ever known with cancer had died. And I thought a cancer diagnosis was the same as a death sentence. And hmm. we ended up going to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital just a few days later. And that's when I started feeling hope, like I was going to be okay. And I spent a year at St. Jude. I underwent intensive chemotherapy. And I also had surgery to save my leg. But that year that I spent at St. Jude was the most important year of my life. And I just fell in love with the place and the people. And I have known since I was 10 years old that I wanted to grow up and work with kids with cancer at St. Jude. And now I have my dream job. I, I work as a PA at St. Jude, and I get to work with these brave kids and their families every day and absolutely love my job. But that year going through cancer just made me who I am, and it gave me such a love for life and appreciation for every day that I'm here. And I think it's because of that zest for life that I ultimately said yes to going to space. That's terrific. So as uh, a person who is going about trying to console, but also inform people, um, we are after all a, po a podcast about data, and you are swimming in data in your day to day job. And you are trying to understand blood chemistry, you're trying to understand um, uh, different kind of early onset sepsis for different kinds of patients. What are the things that you do on a day to day basis? And, and how do you think about that with respect to your history? Do you think you wish you had known some of these different things? Do you have better data now than before? Or do you actually try to avoid data, you know, as a way to kind of communicate and, and connect with people? I think data helps our families understand things in a way um, that is just so much more impactful. And one thing that I love with our electronic medical record is we can go back. It stores all of um, their their blood chemistries, like you said, their um, their labs from the beginning of their treatment at St. Jude, as well as their vitals. And we can graph it out, which really helps the families, but as well as the medical team to see the trends. 
um, to see their weight trends, to see their heart rate. Um, and one thing that we really often graph is the fever curve, um, especially in a patient that has fever and, and low counts. Um, but one thing that we take very seriously is fever in these patients that have low counts. And um, early recognition of sepsis is so important. And so St. Jude actually has this calculation system that is able to calculate um, based on the, the different kinds of vitals like the heart rate, um, the O2 sat, the temperature. It's able to calculate an early recognition system um, so that the medical team has a score. And based on that score is um, the different steps that we would take to um, to evaluate the patient, to order additional blood tests, all in the hopes of preventing severe sepsis. Hmm. How much of this is something that the systems themselves are processing and analyzing versus the interaction with the medical staff and creating data for the decision for the medical staff to make those decisions? They go, they go hand in hand. Um, it's for this early recognition of sepsis score, our nurses do calculate it, but they do based on specific parameters that have already been set, and then that's uploaded into the computer, and then that's something that we can track and that we can graph out as well. So one of the things we often talk about is this concept of active intelligence, which is, you know, having information and analytics is interesting, but the ability to take action on that is really where it starts to make a difference. So what are the kind of different things that one might take with the data as getting one series of results in, with respect to um, symptoms of septis versus not? Uh, and what kind of what kind of options are available to you and how do you know what to do? With our scoring system, um, it at a certain score, it requires that medical staff go and evaluate the patient immediately. And at another score, it requires that ICU come and evaluate the patient. And um, and so with that scoring system and the having us go and see the patient so quickly, um, it really has helped sepsis outcomes over the years. Um, but it's an ability to take that data, to interpret that data, but also looking at the patient, seeing the clinical picture, and putting the two together in order to make medical decisions based upon that. Very cool. So fast forward a few years, you're an employee at St. Jude's, you've got your job, uh, your dream job, helping kids that were in the same situation as you. And I wonder if you could tell us about how you learned that you would be going to space. The biggest shock of my life, I, um, I got a phone call out of the blue asking if I wanted to go to space. Um, but it started, I got an email by the chief of staff at St. Jude saying that they wanted to talk to me about a unique opportunity and <laughs> unique, um, indeed. And then I, <laughs> unique. I, I had some theories about what they were going to ask. I did not know they were going to ask me to go to space, but I joined this call and they start telling me about this first all civilian mission to space that would be used as a fundraiser for St. Jude. And I'm listening to the call thinking, okay, what do I have to do with this? And then they shocked me by asking if I wanted to go as the St. Jude ambassador. And I actually laughed when they asked me that. And I said, what, are you serious? And I followed that with yes. And then, of course, I paused. And I'm like, well, let me check with my mom. But my answer is yes. 
And I just remember hanging up the phone and looking at my hands and they were shaking. Hmm. And I called my mom and I said, you are not going to believe this, but it's true. I just got asked to go to space. And I said, I have to do it. And she said, yes, you do. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And then I called my brother and my sister-in-law who they're actually aerospace engineers. And so I called and I asked them if they thought it would be safe and They were very encouraging and excited for me. And so I said yes, and the next week I was on a plane out to SpaceX. So talk about a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, the prep for this. So this is clearly something that you're like, how on earth am I supposed to be an astronaut? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, this is the first civilian uh, uh, foray into space. And so describe that, that prep process. You had a little bit under a year to get ready. And what was that like? We trained for about six months, and the training was intense in a good way. They wanted us to be very well prepared to go to space, um, to orbit for three days, and um, a lot of that training was academics. We were given PowerPoints on PowerPoints, studying the ins and outs of our spacecraft, the orbital mechanics behind it all, and then what we would be doing in space. And this we spent significant time in our spacecraft simulator practicing what it would be like if everything was going right and then what we would do in situations if things went wrong and our trainers put us through so many simulations where things were going very wrong Mm. and we just had to work through that and um that is ultimately what gave us a lot of confidence going into our mission knowing that we could handle the every system going wrong and what we would do about it but we also did the classic astronaut centrifuge training where we were spun in this little centrifuge and we learned about gravitational forces and the G-forces that we would experience with launch and reentry. We also got to go up in fighter jets. Um, the man who served as our commander is this guy, Jared. He's the one who financed the whole mission, and he has – fighter jets. It's one of his hobbies. And so we got to go up in his fighter jets. And that's where I hit eight G's, eight times the amount of gravity, which was a blast. Um, (laughs) And we did water survival training. We did hypoxia training. And and also Jared added to our training a climb up Mount Rainier in Washington. And this Mm -hmm. was to serve as a crew bonding experience and learning to become comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and that was, it was quite a climb. It was nine and a half hours up the mountain on the first day. And then we spent two nights in tents and that was towards the beginning of our training. So it was a way that we could get to know each other and kind of see how we worked through stress and being uncomfortable. Um, but all this training that we went through really helped us feel so well prepared for space. So whenever it was time to lift off, we were ready. So, um, so you're in that landing uh, cockpit, and you had actually had a chance to watch the uh, the other astronauts that went on the flight before you take off. So you knew a little bit about what you were getting into. What does it feel like to have the actual G's on you as you're going into liftoff? Liftoff was one of the most fun experiences of my life. Um, and we were strapped into the capsule about two and a half hours before liftoff. And spirits were high. We were joking. We were just ready to go. And then they count down from 10. And 
we feel this big jolt and then all of a sudden the G forces come on very quickly and it feels like people are lying on top of you. Um, definitely mm-hmm. pressing you into the seat and, um, but it, it didn't feel very intense, but I will tell you that upon reentry coming back to earth, those G forces, even though they were about the same as liftoff G's, which were, we had about four and a half G's, but coming back to earth, they felt much more intense because we had had three days without any gravity. And mm. so after being in zero G's for three days, when we started experiencing, I remember it was 0.3 G's. So just a third of earth gravity. And I remember thinking, how are we going to get to four and a half? This is so intense. Um, so I definitely felt the reentry G's, but the liftoff G's were just really, really fun. Hmm. That's really interesting. I've never heard anybody talk about the the discrepancy between that force coming back. Yeah, I, and I, I hadn't either, so I wasn't quite expecting it to feel so different. But um, but I will say that I love G-forces, and in training I got the nickname G-Monster <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I always wanted to hit the highest Gs and just take my body and, uh, and see what all I could handle. Well, in some respects on this flight, you turned from the person who collects data about people and situations as part of your normal job to the guinea pig of sorts. You had all sorts of things that were collected about you. What kind of things were collected about you and your your and your body as it was in outer space? It's so true that we were collecting so many data points. And whenever we were selected for this mission, different research companies approached us and asked if we'd be willing to participate in research. And we said, absolutely, yes. We felt that it was our responsibility to progress science. And all of us feel very fortunate to be in the position that we were to be able to go to space. And so anything that we could do to help science, we said yes to. And that turned out to be several different research initiatives throughout our three days. And probably the majority of what we did in space was research. Um, But a lot of the data that they collected was compared with pre-flight data that was collected at several different data points, in-flight data, and then post-flight data that is still being collected. Um, We actually got together a few weeks ago and and collected more data. But some of what we did, um, they tested blood samples, um, all of our our, it was all the typical blood work, but then also um, looking at, at specific markers, um, our immune cells, things like that. Um, so we collected blood, saliva, um, which collecting the saliva in space was very difficult because um, whenever I spit into the tube, the saliva floated right out and onto Jared's sure. seat. <laughs> um, but we, so that was we were collecting um, blood and saliva at those different intervals. Um, we also were taking swabs of our skin at, at several different places on our skin to evaluate the microbiome, the flora on our skin, and, and see how that changed in the microgravity environment, sharing the small capsule with three other people. And we took the cognition tests. This was, again, compared with pre- and post-flight data because previous astronauts have reported feeling a space fog or feeling a cognitive slowness in space. And so that was one way that they were able to evaluate. And we took some of the same tests that NASA astronauts had taken. Um, And did they give you the results of those tests? Some of it is still preliminary. 
Um, and it's, it's being collected and, and analyzed to this day. And you were the medical officer on board, right? Were you called into service at any point in time to assist somebody who was having some troubles? I was. I was. And um, before the flight, I went through specific medical officer training and really understanding the physiologic changes that occur in zero gravity and the symptoms that can result from that and what to do to mitigate that. Um, I as just kind of the nominal, the normal um, activities as a medical officer, I helped lead our private medical conferences with the the SpaceX flight surgeon in mission control. And then I, um, I really helped with all these, these different research initiatives. But, but yes, I was, um, I was there to respond. Some of my crew members had space motion sickness. And so I got to give them intramuscular injections of anti-nausea medications, which I was really excited about because PAs don't often give shots. Um, right. But I will tell you that drawing up the medicine from the vial in space was very difficult because the medicine was floating in the vial. And I have my needle in, in, the, um, in the vial and I'm trying to chase this medicine, but I just keep drawing up bubbles. And at the end of it, I just huh. had to tell my crew members, I'm sorry, but you're going to have some bubbles, but <laughs> you won't die. It's going in your muscle. And, uh, and I gave some shots in space. Definitely felt like it was, it was my hero moment. <laughs> Absolutely, your hero moment. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the, the interaction with the rocket itself. So the Dragon capsule, uh, it's a Tesla object, and it, it almost seemed like in the uh, documentary that it was like a self-driving car almost, like uh, that it was meant to just kind of take care of itself. What did you need to do with it? What was the human interaction versus what the rocket itself was doing? And were there any moments where you were kind of called into service to uh, to do something based on what the machine was telling you? So in some respects, what was the line between what the human did and what the machine did? The machine, the spacecraft, our Dragon capsule, was for the most part autonomous, but it could be controlled by mission control and then also by the commander and pilot who, um, Jared was our commander and then our pilot was Cyan and they had gotten more training in, um, in the controls and the interfaces. Um, but it, they were constantly monitoring the vehicle and it was very well designed, very user friendly to show us as much or as little data as we wanted. Um, but it could show how, um, the cabin pressure was and um and the oxygen levels and how the propulsion system was working how um the avionics was working and if there were any issues it could pinpoint and show exactly where the issue was and so the commander pilot were constantly monitoring it but also they did have to command certain procedures um and and then mission control as well um, and so in a way it was self-driving, but, um, but it could be overridden and the commander pilot went through very extensive training. If there were any issues with the vehicle to be able to take command at that time and know exactly what to do. We had an astronaut on the podcast a few years ago, Mike Massimino, who was describing life on the space shuttle. And he said, you know, in honesty, we probably have more uh, data capacity in a laptop that we carry around with us than we did in the 80s on the uh, on the space shuttle. And he said, you know, light would start to flash and 
he had to look out the window for the most part to figure out what was going on. So how much wild. smarter? Yeah, how much smarter have these have uh, have our spacecraft been become in the meantime? It really was amazing to me looking at um, at the screens that we could interface with. How much data was available at all times? And one thing that was great about our spacecraft is there was a backup for every system, and usually there was another backup after that and could show us if there were any issues and one system had to basically be turned off. It could show us where the issue was and then the backup system and that the health of that system. Um, so I was, I was very impressed by both how much data was available and also how user-friendly it was. Hmm. And what kind of data was the, um, was the rocket conveying to you? It really told us the health of every single system that we had on board. Um, and then it kind of had almost a map of, um, of how, for example, like the avionics system was all connected. And if there was an issue in one area, what would be affected around it? So into the flight, you have what is the highlight of your trip, arguably, when you actually get to have a call with St. Jude's patients. And I wonder if you could describe what that was like and how that went. It really was the highlight of the trip for me. And before the mission, I really knew it was going to be most impactful for me. But we were able to call the St. Jude patients while we were in space and do a live video call with them. And it was not easy to make this happen. And actually, before the flight, about a week before, um, I was told that it probably wouldn't be able to happen as a live call with all the patients that I wanted, because um, I wanted all the St. Jude patients and survivors to be able to have access to this live call, to be able to see it and know that they could do that too. And when I was told that it might not happen, I really fought for it. And I said, we need to make this happen for these kids. They need to be able to see this. And fortunately, they were able to make this call happen and make it live. We ended up with 1,500 people on the call. But it was really wonderful for us. We were able to have specific patients ask us questions while we were in space. And some of those patients on the call were my patients that I've had. And I've gotten to know them really well. And hearing their voices from space just filled us with such enthusiasm and it really reaffirmed why we were doing this mission, why we had worked so hard. We were wanting to give these kids hope and inspiration. And the kids asked really cute questions, like little <laughs> kid questions. Um, one kiddo asked if there were cows on the moon. <laughs> and we just answered their questions. We showed off zero gravity and we showed them our views. On our spacecraft, we flew this cupola window, which was the largest window that had ever been flown in space. And from it, we could see the entire 360-degree view of the Earth. Mm -hmm. And we were able to show the kids that view. And I just ended the call telling them, if I can do this, you can do this. And I told them that we were doing the mission for them and that I was so proud of them. Um, but I was just... I really thought it would be important for the kids to see someone like them getting to do an incredible experience like that and know there are no limits to what they can do too. And your voyage wound up raising $200 million for St. Jude's, didn't it? Actually, $243 million for the hospital. And we had a goal before 
the mission of raising $200 million, which sounded very wild, and I was really worried we wouldn't be able to obtain it. And I was so proud of how we all came together and worked so hard to raise awareness for the hospital um, through our mission and raise the money that's going to help kids not only at the hospital, but all over the world, as St. Jude does so much work globally. So they say that seeing the Earth from outer space changes you. And uh, I think there have been fewer than six or 700 people that have ever done it. So do you feel changed? Do you feel changed from having seen the Earth from outer space? I feel changed every day. Seeing the Earth from space, even though we were so well-trained, that's not something that you can prepare for. It is very shocking to see how beautiful our home planet is. And seeing it filled me with just the most intense feeling of gratitude I have ever felt. Um, kind of overwhelmed by how just how much gratitude I felt by just for being alive and for getting to see something that so few people have gotten to see. When I went to space, less than 70 women had ever been to space. And I felt I felt the magnitude of that. And um, also seeing the planet and how beautiful it is and how thin the atmosphere is just really gave me the desire to do everything in my power to protect our planet and to spread awareness for that. And as seeing the earth as a whole, um, seeing land masses without borders, I felt so united with my fellow earthlings and just feeling like we're all one and the earth is so large but so small at the same time and we're just all in it together. And I don't know if I'll ever be asked back to space, um, but I really, if I was given the opportunity again, I want other people to go because there still haven't been very many people in space and I want other people to be able to experience it. But uh, there, there needs to be more people up there. I can't hog it. <laughs> That's really something. So you have um, you represented hope on your uh, voyage, and um, I think you're you're aspiring to continue that message of hope. You have a book that will be coming out soon called The Wild Ride, and a lot of your theme there is around how anything is possible. That seems to be some of the themes that you share with your students at St. Jude's, students, <laughs> patients at St. Jude's. That seems to be something that you want to share with the world. So tell us a little bit about why you wrote Wild Ride and uh, what some of the themes in it are. Thank you. I am so excited to to share my story with the world. And one reason that I wrote it was I was uh, after the mission was announced, and especially through the documentary, I was contacted by a lot of people all over the world who said that our story and um, and what I had been through and overcome that it inspired them, and that was very impactful for me. And I just wanted to con- continue sharing my story and um, and hope that people could see it and exactly, like you said, feel that anything is possible. I never thought I would be an astronaut, but having that confidence to say yes was life-changing for me. And I also really wanted to share with people who were going through tough times, um, like I had been mm. through. Not everyone has had childhood cancer, but everyone has had something. 
something to overcome. And I wanted to share with them that it gets better and that message of hope. That's really phenomenal. Thank you for sharing that story. So you now have a job that is swimming in data, an adventure that was swimming in data. Uh, Do you have any thoughts around the way that you think data is changing the world right now? Data impacts our everyday lives. And so many of the decisions that we make without even realizing is impacted by data. But I think that data also helps give peace of mind, knowing um, more what to expect and, and having that confidence based on data um, that everything will be okay. I love it. We talk a lot about the uh, importance of certainty, and um, that's lar- largely what you're talking about, right? How do we how do we make sure that people have certainty and confidence, something to f- provide a foundation for them to move forward with? Absolutely. That's great. I agree with that. So, Haley, you were a speaker at our recent ClickWorld event in May. Uh, what was your topic, and what did you talk about? I had so much fun joining ClickWorld, but I got to tell my story and talk about uh, – going through cancer, overcoming all the way to getting my dream job, and then finding out I was going to space and what the training looked like and experiences that we had in orbit, funny moments from behind the scenes, and just really getting to share my perspective on everything. So Haley, how can our listeners find out more about you and uh, your adventures? You mentioned the documentary on Netflix. It's called Countdown Inspiration for Mission to Space. And that's a, a great way to, to share with people what our experience was like. It shows how we were selected for space, our training, liftoff, and then our time in space. A lot of videos from space. And I hope people will read my book, Wild Ride. I poured my heart into it. And, um, and I'm so excited that it comes out in September of this year. And they can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Well, Haley, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Joe, for having me. I had a great time. Haley Arsenault was one of the four crew members selected to fly on SpaceX's Inspiration4. She was part of a groundbreaking SpaceX flight that was the first spacecraft mission composed entirely of civilians, making Haley Arsenault the youngest American ever to orbit Earth. Haley was a keynote speaker at ClickWorld, and you can catch her speech on demand. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Data as certainty, data as hope. Haley Arsenault reminds us of the importance of hope and perseverance and the role of data in giving us the support we need in keeping this hope alive. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization to discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time active intelligence analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data, visit click.com. That's Q-L-I-K dot com.